Hello, welcome to Clockworks, a horology podcast. A what now? Horology, the what? science oh. of clocks. <laughs> I did not know horology was the science of clocks. I'm Paul Moffat. I'm Jan Moffat. And this week we're talking about clocks and how they work. Because it's that's our podcast. In reality, we're talking about Legion, chapter 15. Uh, yes, that's correct. This episode was written by Noah Hawley and Nathaniel Halpern. It was directed by Charlie McDowell. Charlie McDowell is the son of Malcolm McDowell of A Clockwork Orange. What? Yes. That is a weird coincidence and or on purpose thing. (laughs) So he didn't direct chapter 14, which had such an explicit Clockwork Orange reference. He directed this episode that doesn't. That is a weird thing. He also directed, he's best known for directing the film, uh, the 2014 film, The One I Love, which stars Mark Duplass, who is the husband of Katie Azelton, a.k.a. Amy Holler on Legion. Okay. (laughs) And he also announced recently that he is adapting Don DeLillo's novel Zero K as a series on FX. And that series will be produced by Noah Hawley and Scott Rudden. Well, aren't they all just one big happy family? They are. This is a well-directed episode, as they all are. Man, this show is looking really good. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Do we have our own special name for Chapter 15? Oh, yeah. We are calling Chapter 15 Bad Eggs. <laughs> Which is a Buffy reference. If you have not watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, turn your podcast off right now and watch all of it because it's the best show in the history of the world. Don't turn your it's... podcast off. Oh, wait. No. Keep listening. Keep listening to this podcast. Legion is the best show. Exactly. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> you should be. <laughs> we will frequently make Buffy references on this because that's what we do. Yeah, I don't know how frequent. Occasional. We have have made occasional Buffy references. Yeah. So, into our episode. We begin with ostensibly on Legion. Much like last week, apparently on Legion. And a series of flashbacks of previous episodes. Then John Hamm narrates Part 8, Moral Panic. We see a group of pilgrims assemble a gallows and then a child reading comics. He describes moral panic beginning as concern amplified by culture and the belief something terrible is happening. We see the children surrounding the devil with yellow eyes and the woman being hanged as a witch. And the conclusion of what is more terrifying, fear or the frightened. In the white space... Farouk is working on a car, plugging a hose from the trunk to under the hood, and we see flashes of David in the tank. Farouk takes a coin from his mouth to activate the machine in the car, and David's voice echoes. We are suddenly in a lavishly decorated house where David and Farouk sit at a meal. David is mad about Amy, but Farouk mocks him. He tells David to take off his mask, which David denies wearing. David says he's coming for him and begins a countdown, but ends up at the kids' table. 
David spies Amy first through a keyhole and then meets her in the room with him. But all she does is laugh. Right. Oh, goodness. Um, (laughs) First of all, I mean, we should just comment on ostensibly on Legion, which is this is a thing that uh, Noah Hawley did in Fargo as well, where the previously is, but instead of previously was some other thing. It was erstwhile on Fargo. The first season, it was erstwhile. I always thought, I thought it was always erstwhile, but maybe not. I feel like I've seen this kind of like ostensibly before. I'd have to rewatch Fargo to know which season I think it is. But in any case, this is one of these meta moments where it is because of how familiar he can assume that the audience is with the convention of previously on this show that he can mess with it and we still understand exactly what is happening. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter actually what is said at that point because we are familiar with the genre conventions of a TV show and that if someone said, you know, Blorgerbubli on Legion, we would know what Blorgerbubli means. Yep. But then he, it adds ostensibly on Legion, of course, much, in the same vein as apparently, but even more uh, tenuous. Mm-hmm. That like, this is what you are being told happened on Legion before. And ostensibly adds the sense that it's false. Yeah, exactly. It's not actually what happened on Legion before. It's just what you're being told has happened on Legion before. Yep. But your brain has been infected to see. <laughs> or something. We're in being invited into the madness. And then when we talk about moral panic, the two visual signifiers we have are Salem Witch Trial and Comics Code. Mm-hmm. I really, really, really like using the comics, moral panic around the comics uh, as a touch point in this episode at this point. I feel like in here we have two things. We have this witch trial which is very, there's very a lot of current language around witch hunting and when they're not actually witch hunts. And this is showing what an actual witch hunt was like. And then to have this other thing that's the comics code and how it's a reflection of in the 50s when there was a book written called Seduction of the Innocent by Frederick Wortham that claimed comics were were uh, corrupting young minds. And from it, there came the Comics Code, which was a self-regulating body to rein comics in, to make comics more uh, kid-friendly, so to speak. And yeah. it has led to, currently, there's rating systems on comics. Like, you'll see comics rated T for teen, Well, the Comics e for Code everyone. ended in 2011. Yeah, okay. But the... Like, similar to ratings of movies, right? Yeah, there was, exactly. There was such popular and it, it seemed apparent that the government was going to intervene and censor. And so the comics publishing companies all agreed to regulate themselves in yeah. very much the similar way to how movies have their rating systems that are just agreed on by the movie uh, people. Yeah, exactly. And the comics that they use here, like Wortham... Uh, Seduction of the Innocent was partly about, like, he was obsessed with uh, comics were promoting homosexuality mm-hmm. and all the teen sidekicks. Like, he was really upset that uh, Robin was uh, going to turn kids gay. Yep. 
But he also had a big deal with horror comics. Mm -hmm. And so all the comics of like the devil with yellow eyes are so, and like tail chilling tales are all exactly the kind of comics that Wortham was so upset about. Like these horror comics and why Marvel for years didn't have any zombies. They had like rules against zombies Mm -hmm. and you could have things that were undead, but never the word zombie. Yep. It's so familiar if you know any, like, if you're familiar with the history of comics, the way that they frame these comics and the the devil with the yellow eyes, I just love partly because the, like, obviously Legion is based on Legion and X-Men comics, but also partly because the devil with the yellow eyes specifically seems so plausibly the kind of, like, early 50s monster comic. Mm Mm-hmm, Absolutely. And they even have all those, like, posters standing up behind them. And I'm like, I would like prints of all those posters. Uh, FX, if you're listening, please produce those as something I can purchase. Yeah, I I would put that up in our house where our seven-year-old can see it. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, (laughs) And also, I mean, this is kind of silly, but I like that uh, the actor who plays the devil with yellow eyes gets to come back. Yeah. Quentin, I can't remember his last name. Yeah, I mean, either but be, uh, and the Masters of X Studio, who we interviewed, gets to come back and do this character again, and it's fun to see him. And the creepiness of all those kids gathered around him, though. It's interesting because this isn't the first time that we've seen like a character who is a Pied Piper analog, mm, right? Yeah. The monk was kind of the same thing with the kids gathering around him. Yeah, that's true. It's very analogous to the to the monk this john ham narration section is so it seems to me like a um of less exaggerated in some ways no less exaggerated a more careful and less exaggerated version of the ideas of the buffy episode gingerbread Hmm. like it's about uh moral panic and paranoia and how the frightened are actually are frightening and the it's really interesting and it's an interesting place to start the episode it's also very poignant and like finger on the button of what's happening right now once again these narrations are to the audience yeah and they're saying something that is relevant to right now 2018 absolutely and we see farouk in the white space we have not seen a lot of I guess we've seen Farouk in the white space talking to Lenny. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen a lot of Farouk in the white space like this. No. And especially the way that this transitions from one to the other, like Farouk is in the same space where this moral panic was happening. Yes, exactly. Like it's, John Hamm's narration doesn't continue, but it feels like it could. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another kind of disorienting effect where the we have kind of been taught at this point in this season to think of the John Hamm narrations as mostly distinct from our characters and what they're doing. And the devil with yellow eyes showing up didn't bother me much because it wasn't intended to be literally the devil with yellow eyes, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. And even earlier when we had Lenny uh, with the black creature and the egg, that also was like, I didn't read that as this is what Lenny is currently doing. Mm-hmm. 
I read that as Aubrey Plaza is representing an idea for us, the viewers, right? Yeah. But now this is what Farouk is doing at this moment. And it seems like he's in the same space as the John Hamm narration actors. And it's kind of like the way that the transition from different Davids in the last episode erased these boundaries between different universes, you Mm -hmm. know? That the white space... Oh, this is the same white space, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he's fixing up a car. We're gonna see soon, like, maybe it's so obvious it doesn't need saying, but, like, what he's doing with the car here is going to be the machine he uses to travel to the future to talk to Sid, yeah? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's, like, plugging a vacuum from the trunk into the, like, watery pink goo... And then he turns it on with a coin. Pulls which, a penny okay. out of his mouth. It's not a penny. No? No. A copper coin of some kind. Copper coin of some kind that is not a penny. I felt like... Like a car... All of these things are symbolic. Mm-hmm. Uh, there isn't a literal any of it. No. Um, and even you say li- he's there. Mm. This is what Farouk is doing. Except this isn't like literally what he's doing. He's a mind. And this is the idea of what he's, a representation of what he's doing, but he's not literally in a car. No. And a car is symbolic of journey, of Mm -hmm. like traveling. It kind of makes sense that a car would be the symbolic object that he would use to travel. Yeah. Interesting. What does it mean that he sits in the back seat? Yeah, that's a little later, but yeah. Yeah, you're right. Maybe I shouldn't jump ahead. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and then it's, Operated like a, like a pay vacuum at a gas station or something. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, exactly. And why does the coin come out of his mouth like that? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? I feel like that's showing that this is all just him. None of this is reality or in any kind of actual space. He can just make things appear in this space. And so he just, he needs a coin. So he pulls it out of his mouth. Yeah. He's a tricks, kind of a trickster, kind of a magician. He likes to misdirect and redirect and all that stuff. Makes me wonder if, like, taking a coin out of his mouth means that this journey to the future costs something. And what Mm. it costs is something out of himself. Yes, that's a good point. But I don't know what that is going to mean more than that. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, what does it mean then that David calls him out? David starts shouting, you know, yeah, fruit, worm, parasite, whatever he calls him. But then it's Farouk who creates the space they meet in. Yeah. They don't meet in David's, you know, white bedroom that he creates. They meet in this, like, fancy uh, house. It definitely does seem like it's Farouk's. Domain, mm-hmm. for sure. I agree. Yes. It's a sign, again, that Farouk is more powerful than David is, or at least in more control. Definitely more control. I think the raw power we have seen is David. Yeah. Yeah, I won't disagree at all. The... And then, like, they have the conversation, and <laughs> David... Barks at him. Mm-hmm. I like that moment. Yeah, me too. 
I saw it in the trailer for this episode and I really liked it then and I really like it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I expected, I don't know what I expected from Farouk when David was like, you killed my sister. I did not expect like, you, you hated her. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so interesting to think about like, Farouk knows David so well. Farouk yeah. knows David so intimately. He lived inside of him. Yeah. He knows David's thoughts. And so may- maybe David did on some level hate her. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he did. And some of the futures that we, or some of the alternate histories that we got in last week's episode show that, that he was resentful of Amy. Yep. We saw in the last season, we saw Amy's resentment of David. Yeah. And now we're seeing David's resentment of Amy. Mm-hmm. What you just said about how Farouk knows David so well, I hadn't thought in quite those terms till you said it, but Farouk knows David perfectly, has knows all of his thoughts, but David doesn't know Farouk hardly at all. Yeah, exactly. Because Farouk's been erasing David's memories of him mm-hmm. his whole life. That's another interesting power imbalance here. Yeah, it makes for a very interesting dynamic. Yeah. And that David doesn't really know how to interact with him because he he doesn't recognize that Farouk knows him this well. No. I think. I think he's he's kind of I, got a blind spot to that. He's thrown off guard when David when Farouk is like, you didn't like Amy, you hated her. Mm-hmm. That does Farouk think this was a favor, or is That's that just him messing right? with him? Because in the last episode, or the thirteen, I really thought this was him deliberately antagonizing David. Mm-hmm. And maybe it still is. But he is fairly persuasive in like you just don't see that I'm helping you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I'm not sure what Farouk's perspective is, really. Because he is... He does lie. hmm I like, though, that we keep coming back to this, like, is it such a bad thing to have sympathy for your enemy to see things from his point of view? And the show keeps pushing back on our, like, Farouk is the villain. hmm As we're going to see more in this episode. Yeah. Farouk says... Take off your mask. David says, I don't have a mask. And Farouk says, everybody has a mask. Mm-hmm. What do we think of that? I mean, Farouk's kind of right. Yep. That, that everyone has a mask of some kind and that David is hiding things from people. Yep. From In himself, a, even? From himself, even, yeah. And what will happen when David takes off his mask is maybe, is this him becoming a villain? Is that what we're heading towards? This is a question we keep asking. Mm-hmm. And if David takes off his mask, will he be a villain? And this is like, we've seen a kind of a disconnect between the David from before Clockworks and the David from in and after Clockworks of like, mm-hmm. you know, he's a drug addict and violent. And why was he friends with Benny in the first place? Our David doesn't seem like someone who would be friends with someone like Benny. Yeah. And uh, even his friendship with Lenny after she returns is like kind of strained because David, as we know him now, doesn't feel like he's going to be friends with someone like Lenny because she's uh, 
you know, amoral and he's trying to be the best him he can be, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it raises the philosophical question of like, when you are trying to be better than you used to be, that can feel like a mask rather than an effort to change. Hmm. And maybe to some degree it is. You put on a face of the person that you want to be. And there's this gnawing concern that like, but deep down, that's not who you really are. You know yes, what I mean? Absolutely. It's a moral philosophy question of like, is it lying to try to act ethically? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you know that you there's a part of you that doesn't want to act ethically. And is it more honest to just behave, just, just be unethical? Yeah. Right? I feel like that's what Farouk's basic perspective is. Mm-hmm. And Farouk says, God's don't follow the rules. God's make the rules. Is this episode about rules? Maybe. In what way do you think so? I think the idea of, I mean, we start with moral panic. And then we have uh, David trying to figure out how to interact with Farouk. And then we have Sid telling David what he can do in the future with Sid. Sid and David deciding together the rules of how he can interact with future Sid. Mm -hmm. And then we have Farouk showing up in the future Sid and Sid saying, you can't be here. And then Sid says, you can't hurt me here. And Farouk says, you know, are you so sure? And then the rules of who's the villain and who's the hero we're questioning and subverting. And then the rules of following Admiral Fukuyama, who's the boss of this place, everyone is subverting and fighting against. Mm-hmm. And it turns out to be mistaken. Yeah. Uh, I just feel like there there's a lot of perspectives on rules and are following the rules, helping you or hurting you. And when you start to question the rules, is that uh, insanity or is that necessary or and who is Mm. it who questions the rules in this episode yeah you know what i mean yeah absolutely absolutely pretty much everyone questions the rules and even in a more meta way the rules of storytelling are just completely thrown out the window in this entire show (laughs) Um, i mean not entirely but like the rules of like the pool build up to this crazy black creature have just been like come to this and I'm not even sure exactly what this is. Yeah. That's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but it is these children show up. He puts David back at the kitty table. Yeah. As Farouk is always saying. And are these children who live in Farouk's head or are these children who live in David's head? And then by extension, Amy is there. Is Amy trapped in Farouk's head? I mean, all the three people we say, short answer, I don't know. Long answer. These three people we see, the two children and Amy, are all or any of them real in the sense that Oliver and Lenny were real. Mm Mm-hmm. The two children, I think, are, whether they're in David's head or Farouk's head or some third base in the astral plane, 
I think they are not like fantasy figments. Well, throughout the first season, we kept hearing these like giggling children. Right. And we never were sure exactly what that was. No. And could there be children in one of their heads? And no matter whose head it is, it would have been in David's head once. Exactly. They speak French, which makes me think that they're not David. No. Didn't they speak German? I don't think so. No, okay. I think they spoke French. Okay. You know more languages than I do. Yeah. I understand French and German both, but I think it was French. <laughs> Either way, yeah, that makes you feel like they're part of Farouk because they're not speaking English. English. Yeah. And then the question with Amy is like, is that Amy at all? Yeah. Or was it? is it just like a puppet in Amy's shape to antagonize David? I don't know. I don't know. And I feel like... If we're going with clues that we've gotten in previous episodes, then to have Amy be in this space that feels like it belongs to Farouk makes me feel like this is Amy inside of Farouk's head in the same way Lenny was inside of Farouk's head. And we've seen that Farouk, like, collects people. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily with purpose. Right? Like, yeah. he collected Lenny to mess with David, but also just kind of because he does. Mm-hmm. I think. I, is my read on it. Yeah, exactly. You know? And that, the iconography of the devil with yellow eyes is always, he's so bloated and fat, and he's described uh, as, like, being like a tick. Mm-hmm. He's all f- bloated on blood. And Farouk is this kind of, like, he sucks people in, in a tick kind of way of like he uh, consumes people. Yeah. Because he's greedy. Yeah. And then he uses them if he has a purpose for them. And if he doesn't, he doesn't. So it seems extremely plausible to me that Amy's consciousness is subsumed inside Farouk somehow. Mm -hmm. And it even seems unlikely that she's not. Yeah. I don't know that that means we're ever getting Amy back. Yeah, I don't think so. But it's interesting to see her yeah. in this. So moving on. So moving on. Back at Division 3, David lays in bed while the voices in his head talk. Sid wants to talk, but David is reticent. They talk about future Sid and jealousy. Back in the white space, Farouk is in his car drinking, and it fills with smoke. He travels to the future and meets future Sid. She says that he will lose, and he tells her the game is rigged. Sid says he needs to, she needs him to stop the world from ending, and Farouk finally understands that it is David who causes it. He wants to join with Sid. In her cell, Lenny is snapping her fingers, remembering turning from Amy into her. Sid knocks and talks to her and tells her she won't work as a distraction. Autonomy finds a tin can on a string and listens to voices. He then wakes in his room with Vermilion and Fukuyama over him, his basket burning away to reveal the black creature. Autonomy then goes from bedroom to bedroom, leaving eggs and whispering in people's ears. 
Clark walks the hall with Vermilion stalking him. He then wakes to find an eggshell at his bedside. Patonomy and Clark discuss Fukuyama, saying he's not safe. So while David is lying in bed, there's the voices in his head. Yes. And they're they're talking about uh, Farouk. Yeah. And saying, like, can we hurt him? Can we do that? And it's almost like David, you know, David talking to himself, but it's a little more extra. Yeah. This is like what we saw in the first couple episodes of the season and has faded away. Mm -hmm. I like that uh, conceit back again of hearing David talking to David in his own head. It gives, partly because it uh, gives the sense of David being Legion more strongly, but also it's just fun. Yeah, absolutely. And this conversation of present present Sid is jealous of future Sid, or maybe she isn't, or maybe actually she is. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's weird. Um, This is an interesting conversation because... Yeah, because clearly present Sid has reason to be jealous of future Sid. Davis had shown us that he's like into future Sid and feels guilty about it. Mm -hmm. Right? And believes her very strongly. Believes her very strongly is like there's been, there's a sense of like, you know, he has two girls. He said in whatever episode, episode three, I think. Or four, that he has two girlfriends. Mm-hmm. Or one, or two, or he's not sure. It's complicated. But on the other hand, of course, there's a sense in which, like, future Sid is Sid. Yeah. It makes no sense for her to be jealous of herself, and it makes every bit of sense. Of course David's attracted to her. Of course David's attracted, like, uh, connected, feels a connection to her. Uh, she's literally the same exact person Mm -hmm. just a little while later. And we talk about, again, there's a convention in this kind of story to like talk about them as if they're different people. I kind of like this conversation on the bed and how it doesn't really occur to Sid at first to think of her future self as a different person from herself. Mm -hmm. Like, would it bother me if you talk to me? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But then as soon as he mentions being physical with her, then she's like, oh, I don't want that. Yeah. Even though they're not physical with each other at all, the only place they can touch is the astral plane. Yeah. I think that's exactly why she would be jealous. If she can, in the future, she can be physical with David in a way that in the astral now she can only do it in the astral plane, which is better than nothing, hmm. but isn't the same thing as physical. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the, and then this is the moment that I was alluding to earlier where Farouk travels to the future in his car. Mm-hmm. And I commented earlier and you said it isn't yet. And I agreed. So I'm going to bring it back up now. Farouk sits in the back seat of the car. Yeah, that's interesting. I definitely noticed that. And it's this whole, like, get ready for this race, ready, set, go. And he's and he just sits back yeah. in the backseat of the car drinking his whiskey or whatever. And, like, what does that say? 
he is so in control he can just sit back or he's not really in control yeah i felt like him sitting in the back seat of the car has two uh in terms of the symbolic meaning it suggests that he's used to being chauffeured yes he sits in the back seat and orders the car to go where he wants it to go mm-hmm. uh it's a really is a seat of power especially the way that he sells it his yes. body language but in the other sense he's not in the driver's seat mm-hmm. so there's a sense and even being chauffeured there's a sense of putting your fate in someone else's hands yeah absolutely and there isn't a someone else but it they're we're getting a visual of the Shadow King not being as much in control as he thinks he is or mm-hmm. as he presents himself to be. Yeah. And then we travel to the future. Sid is very surprised to see him. Mm-hmm. And they have that whole conversation. He makes apparently a throne manifest. Like we saw the whole room and there wasn't a throne at first. Yeah, I think so. I think he made that throne. And they take turns sitting in it. Yeah, I like which was when really Sid interesting. Sits in the throne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he talk. They talk. He says, "Games of do you play games of chance? They're always rigged. The house and you know, the state rigs things, and I'm the state." Well, he says, "Like if someone dies without an heir, yeah, then the then it goes to the state. Well, I am the state." And so, like, is that him? He dies without an heir, but he's still there? That maybe if he dies, he go, still goes into David? I don't know. This is what, like, even when I lose, I win. What does that mean, literally? Yeah. Because I get what it means. What it's suggesting is he has rigged the game and he, there's a, it's a no-lose situation. And no matter what happens, he has the upper hand somehow. Okay, I get it. Is that just posturing? Or does he actually have an actual like mechanism in place? He definitely has a plan because he's all yep. about the plan. Yep. So I think he has some kind of plan that if David somehow destroys his body, he still can exist. Yeah, but the, I don't think that there's ever even been implied that destroying his body will make him cease to exist, will it? I guess it will cease to make him powerful. Yeah. But yeah, that's a good point. I mean, and maybe it does, because the Fukuyama said in the first episode that mutation is genetic of the genes. Mm-hmm. So if you destroy his body, then his astral projection has nowhere to be projected from. Mm-hmm. And if he finds his body again, he becomes more powerful. Yeah, I don't know. Because it does seem like the specific example that he uses of when someone dies without an heir seems like a pointed example. Yes, exactly. Right? It reverts to the state and he's the state. But he's not the state, like... He's a self-proclaimed king. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know what that is implying about the actual world. I just don't know what he's claiming here. Yeah, me neither. It's unclear. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Mm-hmm. He's definitely, he likes to claim power, and he, this is just another example of him claiming more power. It is. 
the part where there's two parts where um we get echoes back. We have Sid saying, oh, David saying, I love you. And then are you going to say it back in the yeah. same way Sid said that in I think the very first episode, wasn't it? I think so. The very end of the first episode. And then we have, we need you. No, I need you. And that I feel like Sid said before or David said before. I don't know. I forgot to look it up. But Leia said it to Han Solo. Sorry. <laughs> I suppose, yes. But I feel like it was in an episode of Legion. Okay, yeah, that could be. <laughs> probably, a, probably a reference point worth thinking about. Mm-hmm. Legion instead of Star Wars. That I feel like Sid said this to David at, at one point. Was the we need you, I need you. Hmm. In terms of it Summerland. Sounds, it sounds right. I can't remember when it would be, though. I'm going to have to go back and look. I, I am ashamed that I didn't do it before we recorded this episode. But I feel like it was some point at Summerland. But it, there are a few lines in this episode that are callbacks to previous episodes. Yeah, certainly. And if that line... Uh, I, I believe you. I don't remember the exact moment, but I'll believe you that Sid said it. And even if she hadn't have said it, which I'm going to accept that she did, she definitely expresses that idea. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely like a callback to in season one that like David just wants to be with Sid. David doesn't know whether he wants to be with Sid or helping out Summerland. This mm-hmm. war is more important than some guy named David and his sister. And then here we have, like, this guy, war is more important than some guy named David. Mm-hmm. And I need you. And it's all about who is devoted to Sid and why. Sid yeah. is still central to this whole thing. Yeah, exactly. That's just interesting. And then we have another, the second big conversation about villainy mm-hmm. from Farouk. He's, yeah, he realizes that it's actually David who's caused this. He's broken the world. He's the world breaker. Yeah. He's the the bomb. Which, like, did we already know that? I don't think we officially knew it, but... We we were pretty... We suspected that. We suspected it very strongly. Yeah. And so... But I guess this is the confirmation of what we've had suspicions about for a long time. And so if, if the hero becomes the villain, does the villain become the hero... Sid kind of thinks not, right? Yeah. Maybe we're all villains. She yeah. doesn't say maybe we're all heroes. Yeah. She says maybe we're, maybe all, we're villains. all villains. Interesting. I like to the another thing that comes up for the second time of uh Farouk says for centuries people talked about Amal Farouk, the villain and mm-hmm. the heroes with blue eyes and white skin. Yep callback to i think it's actually a little bit of it's still a good idea i think it was kind of done better the first time we had a conversation about villainy Mm -hmm. when farouk said your father who is white which is important you tell me Mm -hmm. i think that's a stronger expression of the same idea yeah but blue eyes and white skin like that's not just any white person it's david specifically yes exactly but the hero is the villain, and the villain is the hero. Farouk's not going to destroy the world. He's going to save it. 
And he's going to save it by stopping David. Mm-hmm. And that's what future Sid wants, is her, him to stop David. Right. And he's, he's the only one who can, I suppose. He's the only one who's strong enough. Yeah, I mean, I can now see... Uh, and I mean, I say now, but I strongly suspected this before. But, like, from Sid's perspective, it would be. Who mm-hmm. would be able to stop David? Yeah. Well, maybe if you get the Shadow King to get his body back, he can stop David, maybe. Yeah. That's, like, their only chance. Mm-hmm. That makes so so much sense. Yeah. And their conversation, Farouk and Sid's conversation, ends with Farouk reaching out and touching Sid's cheek. Yes. So that does bring up the question, what is this space where they're meeting? This black and purple space. Is it astral plane or is it real? Can Sid be touched in the future or is this an astral plane space where she can be touched? I don't think Sid's powers have changed in the future. Yeah. I don't think, like, why would they? Why would they? And also just her reaction to mm-hmm. being touched is not like, oh yeah, t- being touched is now no big deal. Yeah. She reacted very strongly to him touching her. But we saw in the first interaction between future Sid and David, they had just light but no sound because sound can't travel back in time because it's too slow or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, it's not the astral plane exactly, but it is... My theory is neither one of them are physically anywhere. Mm-hmm. They're in come, in-between space. How come they're always meeting in the same room? And mm-hmm. how does Sid know to come there when they call her? Yeah. Because it's not a physical space. Yeah. Yeah. The first time we saw it, we thought it might be because it was like there was fish outside. We were like, maybe this is an underground bunker. Yeah. But, but now no, I don't I'm think so. pretty sure it's it's not real. Yep. And that's why she can be touched. Unless, here's my other crazy theory, is unless when he touches her, they switched bodies. And then when David goes down there later, it, that's not Sid at all. It's the Shadow King. Whoa. I you didn't think of that? I didn't think of that at all, but you just blew my mind. <laughs> Usually there's a fairly big reaction when she switches bodies with people. But they could totally have played it close but, to the chest. Yeah. Ooh. I don't, I don't actually think so, but that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And if you turn out to be right, I'll be happy that you were right. <laughs> well, there you go. So but we how have, could, sorry, go ahead. I'm, I'm still on that. How could they switch bodies when Fruk doesn't have a body? Right. And that yes. comes back to like, it can't be a physical space. Fruk doesn't have a body. Yeah, you're right. I like that idea though, but I don't think so. Mm-hmm. So we have Lenny in her cell Trying to get out. When they first show her, she's like sawing at something at like the window. So she's like once again trying to get out, which makes sense because she's been trapped for so long and now she's trapped again. Mm-hmm. But this like finger clicking, switching back into Amy thing. It's ooh, it's creepy. So creepy. And it's so like, we have been, we in the world, I mean... David and the Davidettes have been acting as if uh, Amy is gone, but the show keeps giving us the sense that Amy is still somewhere. Yeah. 
is still in there that this is not Lenny. Yeah, this definitely. is some kind of amalgam or some kind like she has some of Amy's memories. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's an optimistic uh, message. Mm-hmm. I don't think what we get from that is, oh, good, Amy's still alive and everything will be well. No, definitely not. Uh, but like, Amy's still suffering. Yes. And that Lenny's face is still on Amy mm-hmm. in some sense. And maybe that's going to show up in like, there's some of Amy left in there that how Lenny behaves and thinks and approaches the world is not former Lenny anymore. Mm-hmm. And why is she snapping her fingers? Is that to punish herself or is it to regain herself? Especially her interactions with David. When David discovers that it's Amy, she holds him. She, yeah. like, comforts her, him in a way that Lenny wouldn't. It doesn't Amy feel like would. Lenny's character. Yeah, exactly. Yep. I really am, frankly, disturbed by that snapping fingers and remembering mm-hmm. Amy screaming. And then she does it again and again and again. Yeah. Well, and Sid comes and says, you know, I don't think you're Amy or Lenny. I think you're the music they play outside a hostage situation. You're yeah. a distraction is the, you yep. know, what that's saying. But then Lenny continues to be disturbing and like talk about Farouk raped her in his mind and whether that's true or not, who knows? And just like... She's trying to get sympathy from Sid. Yes. I think, yes. Or she's trying to mess with Sid. I think she's really and truly traumatized. Mm -hmm. And whether the trauma she describes is the trauma she experienced, what I get out of that scene is that, like, she is not simply Farouk's willing lackey. Mm -hmm. She, like, is... Deeply traumatized. Yes, that's true. And maybe that is, and I in fact think Sid is right, that is Farouk is using that for his purposes. Mm-hmm. But that's not Lenny's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why does Sid go down to that cell in the first place? Hmm. Why does she want to see Lenny? Just know. to tell her off? To tell her that she's not going to distract him? Yeah, it seems like that is distracting Sid. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure from Sid's perspective what she's gaining here. Mm-hmm. Good question. And then we have Patonomy. And then we have Patonomy walking around, putting eggs in people's bedsides, mm-hmm. whispering into them. He hears that. I love that tin can thing. That he comes, it comes, he puts it on his ear and it oh. whispers to him. I mean, it's love it in terms of like, it's creepy. And then the black like, ooze coming out of his ear. Mm-hmm. You love that? <laughs> no, but like, it's interesting because it's the first time it was his like left ear. And this is this time he's putting the can on his right ear. Hmm. And so it's like, it's gone through. Yeah. Autonomy is fully infected. Yes. By this thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's... Yeah, he goes around and puts all the eggs next to the people. And it... What they're... The delusion that they're experiencing is that Fukuyama is untrustworthy. And that is interesting because... Coming back to the idea of moral panic... um, Did I write down the exact... Yeah. 
rational concern becomes irrational fear. Mm-hmm. There's rational concern about Fukuyama. Absolutely. And like, they all, the Summerland people joined with Division 3, but the Division 3 was their enemy for so long. It's, it makes sense that they would be questioning of him. Yeah. I, I really like that it's not that they all uh, turn on even David, that they're like, both they and we, there is rational concern about Fukuyama, even to the end of the episode. Like, Fukuyama is still not acting on the up and up. Mm-hmm. Uh He's not who they're afraid that he is, but he's also not who he's presenting himself to be. Exactly. I really love it that there's some complexity that just because you're paranoid about someone doesn't mean he's not a threat. Mm -hmm. Right? Just because your understanding of him is paranoid. And he is watching. Yeah, exactly. He is there watching everything. They're not wrong. Mm -hmm. But they're also so incredibly wrong. I love it, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clark's dream is the best thing ever. <laughs> him walking down the hall and the <laughs> and the vermilion behind him posing and, like, the music. Is, this whole sequence is just, I love it so much. I love much. it, too. It's brilliant. With every, like, the music playing and then suddenly stopping as he turns around is good. And then starting again when he turns forward again, it was like, I don't know. That's brilliant. Mm. It's so good. Yep. I really love it. I totally agree. It is the best. And the Vermilion's poses. Mm-hmm. But exactly. just the way the music starts again. Yeah. That's all you'd need. That would be enough to make me love this episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if that was all that happened. Yeah. If everything else was standard TV show and then that happened. Yeah, Exactly. So David goes back in the tank and meets future Sid again. He's mad about Amy and that she didn't tell him. But she tells him to stay focused and they need Farouk not to, so they don't lose. She tells him to go and live and he kisses her. Current Sid walks the hall and sits in Fukuyama's chair. We see Vermilion removing the basket and putting Fukuyama to bed. A woman in a rocking chair knits at his bedside. Clark, Potonomy, and Carrie arrive, and they ride in an elevator with Sid, talking about Fukuyama eating people and the need to destroy him. David finds a hallway full of eggshells. In a different hallway, Potonomy and Carrie fight a group of vermilion. Clark and Sid find Fukuyama and tell him to take the basket off. Underneath, he's just a man, but Sid and Clark see the black creature. David arrives just in time to stop Clark from shooting him, and he takes the small black creatures out of their heads, calling them insanity. A huge black creature bursts out of Potonomy, and David follows it and finds Carrie in a hallway. Vermilion drags Potonomy away into the mainframe, which is a forest, where they plug him into a tree. Meanwhile, David corners the creature and takes him into a red space. He yells at the creature about timing and then places it in a jar and kills it. Future Sid watches through a porthole at David and the others. John Hamm narrates again about beliefs becoming delusion. 
In the mainframe, Photonomy awakens in a dark space covered with binary code, finding the woman in the rocking chair knitting. She hushes him, and we cut to credits. So future Dave, so David can touch future Sid too. Yes, this is the point when he touches her as well. Which makes me think that uh, you're wrong. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was just a random guess. But yeah, you're right. I, I, if he touched her at this point, then they didn't switch bodies either. Right. Unless, <laughs> unless they did, and unless this is now Sid. Couldn't switch bodies because they already had no. Okay. It just doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. You're right. I am only considering it because it would be so awesome. But no, <laughs> I don't think it works at all. No. Um, I like when this meeting between David and Sid in the future mm-hmm. is like Sid has remembered the lesson that she taught David in her head. Yeah. That she's approaching it differently, right? Instead of, I'm going to stop you from being a villain by uh, getting your arch enemy to defeat you. She's saying, uh, we have, love isn't what's going to save us. It's what we have to save. And she's saying, like, go and make good choices. Mm-hmm. Right? She has to find a way. She and David... And the show has to find a way, instead of trusting on love to save them, they have to find a way of saving David's love mm-hmm. for Sid, for the world, for people, so that he doesn't turn into a villain. Yeah. Right? That's how I read all this. Yeah, I think so. I think so. That she's reevaluated her strategy here. Mm hmm. And she's also, I think she's come to just kind of accept her fate. Like, she can't change Yeah. from her perspective. Even if he does change it, her, she'll just blink out of existence. Mm-hmm. That's what we know from the past episode with all of David's potential futures, potential pasts, or whatever. True. And we have Sid voiceovers. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is... We've done that before. Yep. We um, have. About a dream memory of a dream. Mm-hmm. And this is all happening for the first time again. We've had, through the whole season, like, loops and memories and echoes and repeats. And we're coming back to something. And we're treating something as if it's the second time, even though it's the first time. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of really addressing that at this point that we're not sure what order things are happening and when things have happened first and like all the stuff with the monk we talked about this that like david remembered stuff that hadn't happened yet yep exactly except that maybe he didn't mm-hmm. maybe it was a dream memory of a dream yep which does that suggest that this whole thing, does that once more suggest that this whole thing is a dream? It was all a dream? It was all a dream? That would be pretty lame. And OEDM, there's no place like home? I don't think so. But it does, like, the show is a show, and the clips of the show, of the future of the show, this is all happening for the first time again. Yeah. Right? I mm. think it's a, 
it's a meta commentary. Yeah, absolutely. And then what is Sid doing on Fukuyama's pedestal? She's imagining she's him. Yeah. Which is something Sid can, because she can do that kind of thing. I guess. She, if she had, she, if she had touched him, she would have been the him. Right. And so this is like, this is something she is familiar with, is sitting in someone else's space, hmm. acting like you're them. Okay. And I don't think she's actually changed bodies with Fukuyama, but I think this is something that she might do in a dream, Yeah, is be in his body in her dream. No, that makes sense. Okay. I accept it. <laughs> Thank you for your acceptance. That makes a lot of sense to me. They... I really like when Fukuyama's face is finally revealed and he's just a guy. Yeah, me too. So much. That like all this build up to like what's under the basket, what's under the basket. And no, it's just a guy. He's a mutant and he needs and he has vermilion are his like extensions of him. Or like not a mutant, uh, technologically enhanced because he was the leader of Division 3 that was fighting mutants. Hmm, maybe that's true. You're right. I always assumed he was a mutant. I don't think so. I think he's a cyborg. They have mutants working for them. Yeah. Like Walter was a mutant. Oh yeah, that's true. And the like, the uh, metal poles all around his head are very medical. Mm -hmm. They look like the kind of things that you like brace that you give someone when they have a broken neck or something. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So it it's an alternate explanation for the basket that's so satisfyingly uh, anticlimactic. Mm -hmm. Like, what's the deal with this basket? Is oh, it's just because he doesn't want to jostle his head in any way. Yep. Because he's like in pain. Mm -hmm. Right. His face is full of scars. Yeah. Yeah. When they're putting when the Vermilions are putting him to bed, which is a little earlier than we see his yep. face. What's the rocking chair lady? She comes up again for patonomy. Yeah. But let's talk about her in the context of Fukuyama. Well, I mean, it's hard to separate the two because I feel like once we see her in that binary room space, it makes me think that she's not real. Right. She is computer. She's part of the computer world, the mainframe. And so F Fukuyama would see her, but he's, she's not actually there. Fukuyama, like David, sees things that aren't there, has people in his head who aren't, no one else can see, has yeah. multiple people. Mm-hmm. Had something came into his head when he was a child. There's a lot of parallels between David and Fukuyama again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We saw a, two episodes ago parallels between David and the Shadow King. I mean, mm -hmm. between Fukuyama and the Shadow King. And now we're really uh, pushing on the parallels between Fukuyama and David. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I don't think in the literal sense, but she is to Fukuyama as the Shadow King was to David. Hmm. I don't possible. think that she's a mutant infecting his mind. Like, I don't think she's a literal analog. Yeah. She's like in Fukuyama's head and, and affecting how he perceives the world. Possibly malevolently. 
She seems we'll ominous. We'll find out. I mean, she seems definitely seems ominous, but unclear. She also seems friendly because she's like this, you know, nice little old lady knitting. <laughs> right. Which is always completely harmless. Yeah. I want to talk about this now while I'm thinking of it, which was when I was writing out this episode and writing the beat by beat, I noticed that the word hallway just kept coming up. They were like, they're in this hallway. They're in David's in a eggshell filled hallway. They're fighting Vermilion in a hallway. Clark's walking down a hallway. This episode is just full of hallways and in between spaces and liminal spaces. Hmm. And what does that say about this episode as a whole? It's an in-between episode. It's an episode where we're getting from one place to another. And there's a real sense that, like, there's a first half of this episode and there's a second half of this episode and they kind of have nothing to do with each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that builds to your sense of, like, this is a liminal episode on the threshold, Mm -hmm. in the hallway, in the non-space. Is there any, I guess, the pedestal room? Mm -hmm. Is there any other time that we're actually in a room? Yes, I mean, we're, Potomomy Potomomy goes around all the different rooms. We see David and Sid in their bedroom. Yeah, yeah. And whatnot. But there is just a lot of liminal spaces. Yeah. Is it a meta commentary that the show is about to be something else? Is moving to a different stage of the season? Or is it within the... Is it telling us something about within the world? Is it a commentary on, like, David's transitioning... To something else. Mm, I was seeing it more as meta, but I think you're right. It's both. And the a lot of the season, in retrospect, is about who David's going to be, who David's mm. going to turn into. And all the connection to the future wasn't obvious then, but now is kind of becoming more clear that that's all concern about who David's going to be. Mm-hmm. And now David's in this hallway. Yep. And he's going to turn into something. And is he going to ter- turn into the villain that Future Sid remembers or not? Mm-hmm. He hasn't done it yet, but he's moving towards it. Yeah. Is that hallway literally full of eggshells? And if so, where are all those people? Are- is everyone in Division 3 got that thing in their head? I don't know, because that's a lot of eggs. Yeah, but they're all just, like, in the hallway. Yeah. I feel like almost this is David seeing a symbol of what's there, but not actually what's there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because Because Ptolemy was putting eggs next to people's beds so they could go right from the egg to their head. And then he also just, like, lined the hallway with eggs. Yeah. And it gives, like, as with season one, this is one of these few moments where I'm not sure whether the show is uh, doing things effectively or not. Mm -hmm. That Division 3, much like Summerland, it feels like we are being told that it's more populated than we see. Yes. Absolutely. I would like that to be purposeful, but I wonder if it's just like they didn't have a lot of extras. Mm-hmm. You know? They didn't want to have extras all the time everywhere. They often have things happen at night. 
So yeah. we have seen daytime scenes where there are tons of people around, but then we see these other scenes that are at night and we don't see yeah. what's happening. Because I feel like all the eggs in the hallways could easily, be, all the eggshells in the hallways could easily be eggs that were placed next to people's beds and they just like threw them out in the hall or whatever. Mm-hmm. That doesn't bother me. Yeah, fair enough. I do wonder like when David kills the giant bug monster has he taken the bugs out of everybody's head and we see in just a second that like he takes a bug out of clark's head and out of uh sid's head he doesn't ever take one out of carrie's Mm -hmm. on screen but she seems to be cured yeah that's true so like i don't know if i think that is maybe telling us that david doesn't have to physically Pull his, pull the black thing out of people's foreheads to do something about it, mm-hmm. and he's just has done just accept that he's done something about it for everybody. Yeah, right. And it's only Patonomy. Patonomy is like had this in his head for a long time, which is why it bursts out of him specifically. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's my read on it. I don't know why Patonomy in the first place, whether that was just random. I feel like it was just random, but in terms of the show, he is suspicious and uh, angry Mm -hmm. to mess with someone's head who remembers everything. Yeah. It's significant. Yeah. It's really hard to watch him basically die. I really like Patonomy as a character. I know. I hope that Patonomy is okay, but I don't think he's okay. No, I think we're going to see the actor and we're going to see this like mainframe Patonomy or whatever. But I think Patonomy as we knew him, mm, I think he's dead. I agree. That's sad. My note is just Patonomy in all caps with exclamation points. That's what's <laughs> in my notes. <laughs> I got to say, one of the coolest lines in this episode is David meets Carrie in the hallway And she does something like she grabs her axe or whatever. And he just says, that's a bad idea. (laughs) But it's also the thing itself is the representation of an idea. Yes. That's a bad idea. Is he talking about the thing that just ran by? Or is he talking about the idea that Carrie just had of attacking it with an axe? And Mm -hmm. if he's talking about Carrie attacking it with an axe, is it because he saw her pick up an axe or because he's covertly reading her mind? I don't think it's covertly. I think he can't whatever. really help it. He just is reading your mind going, no, that's a bad idea. But also there definitely works on the two levels of. Yeah, it's a great line. That thing is a bad idea. What just ran by? A bad idea. Mm-hmm. I want to back up to the fight scene with Patonomy and Carrie and all the Vermilions in the hallway. Yes. Just especially to say, remember at the beginning of this season when I said I thought Carrie's competence was informed and I wanted to actually see her doing something badass? Mm-hmm. Well, you're welcome. Yep, this was or badass. Or thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't make it happen. But thank you. You gave me exactly what I asked for. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of a cool fight scene. Mm-hmm. I liked it a lot. And then Clark again has maybe my second favorite moment in this show is another clark moment which is when david turns clark's gun into a mop yeah (laughs) and he's just like what What? (laughs) yeah that's great (laughs) fantastic it's good stuff 
Yep. But then that mop is used to mop up Ptolemy's yeah. blood later. So, like, why did he turn it into a mop? God. Was it? Did he know on some level that they were going to need a mop? It's Aww. weird. You bummed me out about the funny thing. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did he know? Mm-hmm. Hmm. And the Vermilion on behalf of Fukuyama says that they're agents of the Shadow King. That's what uh, Fukuyama assumes. Mm-hmm. But no, and we've said all along, and we get textual confirmation, not the Shadow King. This is a separate thing. This is something else. Mm-hmm. Well, we got this, we got some feedback this week, and I think we definitely need to talk about it kind of when we're talking about these creatures, is uh, Miranda via Twitter in a DM said, in your discussion about Carrie bringing up the Shi'ar in the second episode, it made me wonder whether the delusion creature is actually an alien and thinking they're at least partially meant to be the brood. What do you guys think? And I was really unfamiliar with what the brood were. And so I looked it up and was like, oh, they're giant exoskeleton creatures that look exactly like these black oily creatures mm-hmm. that hatch out of eggs and then hatch in other people, much like the aliens in Alien. Yeah, I've heard the brood described as imagine the aliens from Alien, but in the Marvel universe. Yeah. But they're like... Because this season we talked about the Shi'ar. Mm-hmm. No, did he did we talk about the Shi'ar? Yeah. Yeah. I suddenly couldn't remember what alien we talked about. We talked about the Shi'ar, and now we have that introduces the idea that there are aliens that this universe is aware of. Mm-hmm. In universe, they know that there are aliens, and we can accept that. And the brood are an alien creature that... In Marvel Comics, they're generally like one of the most straightforwardly evil we don't usually the 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 alien species usually have you know nuance and some of them are good and some of them are bad and whatever but the brood are just like demons yep sadistic and they are super evil we kind of see that like the end game of a brood would be just like let's cause some suffering yeah that feels like what we're seeing here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Whether they literally end up being labeled as the brood or not, I don't know. I think I buy completely that there's a inspiration here mm-hmm. at the very least. Absolutely. Yeah. So David takes him into this red space. Yeah, I really to like defeat it. him. I really like it too. And it just there's there's this interesting thing where we've had we have the white space, we have this red space, we have a gray space sometimes when David is reading people's minds. Uh-huh. We have now future Sid is in kind of a black space. Hmm. So we have these different this season these different uh, places, these different astral planes. Yeah, that are color coded, and this. Red space is basically like a murder space. He brings him to the murder space so he can deal with him and then murder him. It's interesting that you in your recap said David yells at him about the timing. And I wrote in my notes, like, I love that he talks so reasonably with the bug instead of yelling at him. (laughs) That is 
also true. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't feel that he yells at him at all. He's like, "You're it's bad timing. And I realize that's not your fault. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He's so just like, look, look, man, we can just, re- like, let's just hash this out. Can you just leave us alone? Uh, I really like the red space. It totally is murdery. There's a, it's emotionally charged, which is maybe why you read it as yelling, mm-hmm. even though he's talking so reasonably, I think. Um, because the color coding is like anger. Yeah. I really like the different astral planes that aren't the same as each other. And I really like the way that throughout this entire, I love this scene. The mm-hmm. scene is so good. Mm-hmm. I love that throughout this entire scene, we never know whether the bug thing I'm going to just call it a brood. Uh, whether the brood no- understands David. Yeah, exactly. We don't know whether it like says, no, I'm not going to give you a break or whether it just can't understand English mm-hmm. or whether it is uh, insect and not reasoning. Mm-hmm. I like how alien it is in that sense of like its motives are opaque the end it just is some malevolence mm. it was interesting though the way he killed him after he puts him in the jar he kills him in the same way that walter was killed in the same way that policeman was killed in the last episode that crumpling thing yeah is the way david kills things i know and that is this in the last episode the Shadow King was still in David's head. Mustachio hmm. David's head when he crumpled that policeman. Right. This is now David without the Shadow King behaving like Shadow. So we've this is a three beat across two seasons, right? Mm-hmm. That first it's just Lenny does it. Yeah. Then it's David under Shadow King's influence. And now it's just David. Yeah. And uh, this is a bug that's malevolent and... So we're, I think, encouraged not to care too much. But I think it's, yeah. uh, I, uh, they're leading us down the garden path. Yeah. We should care. Right? And it's showing a descent into villainy for David. Yeah. Uh, totally. We have future, a flashback to future Sid, like looking through a porthole and she sees the present or past or whatever. Mm-hmm. Could she watch what's going on in the present? Yeah, that was weird. I don't really understand that. That she can, like, look through that porthole and she could see David sitting on a couch and then she saw the rest. She saw herself. I wonder if that's something to do with uh, Farouk having visited her. Maybe. He, like, left something behind. They've teamed up. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Or maybe she's just remembering. Maybe. Because that was her. Which is just like the same visual effect as uh, Lenny staring up in the ceiling and seeing Farouk and Oliver in the car. Yeah. And then we also have a recap from John Hamm. Right, yes. So what have we learned? What have we learned? And he takes us step by step. And what it turns out we have learned is what starts as an egg can become a monster. Mm -hmm. And though, so... I think that the uh, the brood egg, I think, like, it's been pretty clear all along, as far as I'm concerned, 
the brood egg is a metaphor. We've dealt with that egg that became a monster, but look a little deeper. There's something else that started as an egg of an idea and is going to become a monster. Mm-hmm. And the monster is David. And what's the egg of an idea that's going to hatch into monstrosity for him? I mean, the monster isn't David, but that's what I think. Yeah. The risk of a monster is David. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I think it definitely is setting us up for that. So we end with uh, Patonomy in this mainframe computer space, I guess. And there's binary code all over the walls. Mm-hmm. And if you translate all that binary code, you have a lot of time on your hands. Because <laughs> I sure am not going to. <laughs> I, for a second, I thought you did. And I was like, good gravy. We can say right here, right now, you and I put a lot of thought and work and background and we look into stuff. I am never in this show or any show going to translate binary. <laughs> and I know it's probably just a matter of like, write down one zero, write them down and put it into a, I'm sure there's apps that translate oh, yeah. it for you, but like, no, <laughs> too far, I, too far, this far, no further. <laughs> never. I'm well, never going to. What I'm hoping is that if any of our listeners want to translate some of the binary that's on the walls, Feel free and send it to us, because that's just a bit too much work for me. <laughs> yes, agreed. Um, I also never, like, in a book or a show or whatever, like, me, uh, Morse code. Yeah. I'm slightly more likely to do put in the work to translate than binary. Hmm. But, like, uh, <laughs> you're not other, a, You're not a code cracker? Other codes. Hmm. Other codes I'm totally into, like... Uh, you know, letter displacement codes or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'll totally put in the time to, or like, you know, a, a fake alphabet that's a code. I'll totally put in the time to translate those things. But for some reason, Morse code, it seems tiring to me. And binary is where I draw the line. <laughs> <laughs> that's just me though. Yeah. Anyway, he's in this space and he finds the woman in the rocking chair and she just goes, shh. To him. Yeah. And like, what? What? Who is she? Is she going to come up again? I hope she does. I think if she doesn't, that would be incredibly weird. Mm -hmm. Well, you said immediately, like, is this Patanami's mother or something? But then, no, because she was with Fukuyama. Yeah. So that wouldn't make sense. Doesn't make any sense. My, I... Generally don't like uh, just telling people in a podcast exactly what my notes say. Uh, But exactly what my notes say at this point is knitting lady in the rocking chair, WTF, question mark, exclamation mark, question mark, exclamation mark, question mark. (laughs) That's my entire note to myself. Yep, that's basically me too. (laughs) I guess we'll find out in future episodes. I guess we will. So tell us about the songs that were in this episode, Paul. While Fukuyama and David are in this richly appointed room at a dinner table uh, talking to each other uh, with a bowl of fruit in in front of them, the music playing is uh, by Joachim Raff from his Volker, which is a uh, tone poem series, a tone poem like a song with like a 
song without words, but that has a story with it. Mm-hmm. And this one is called Im Rosenkarten zu Worms. Tranquilo. Uh, it is a, uh, the, the story that goes along with it, Im Rosenkarten zu Worms, in the Rose Garden in Worms, which there's maybe a double meaning because Farouk is a worm, but Worms is a place in Germany. It mm. doesn't mean like creepy crawlies. It means in the Rose, rose Garden in this place. Uh, the story that goes along with that is the owner of the Rose Garden thinks the Rose Garden is really fancy and the people guarding it are the toughest in the world. And he sends a challenge to Dietrich, who is a character in German mythology. And Dietrich gathers his men, comes to the Rose Garden, and they have a big fight. And uh, the Dietrich and his men win the fight in every instance until Dietrich has to fight against Siegfried. Siegfried is hard to beat because he has uh, been coated with dragon skin because reasons. Uh, and so he's invulnerable. Uh, but Dietrich gets so mad about that that he breathes fire, melts the dragon skin, and defeats Siegfried. That's the story behind Im Rosengarten zu Worms. It's a pre-existing story that this composition didn't make up, but is referencing. Now, there's lots in there. One thing is the just to throw out there that the fruit bowl sitting in front of them has a dragon fruit in it. And then here we have a, the music playing also references a dragon. Uh, that's a weird coincidence because a dragon fruit is not typically a fruit you would include in a fruit bowl. Coincidence? Cool or looking. Coincidence or conspiracy? Exactly. Uh-huh. And a dragon is a typical in folklore monster, mm-hmm. which is what the Shadow King is also. But then there's also, this is a story about two German, two regions of Germany that fight each other. The heroes of two different uh, cycles of Germanic epic poetry fighting each other and one of them winning. Mm -hmm. And neither of them is the villain and both of them are the hero. And they're just two different sides. And who happens to be telling the story is the one that makes Dietrich the hero. And that's as Farouk and David are talking about, like, let's fight each other and race down. And David's like, I'm the righteous one who's all good and you're the villain. And Farouk is like, you know, your sister wasn't so great. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the music kind of reframes all of this in Farouk's perspective. That, like, they're just two equal people who are battling each other. And that comes immediately to the next song which isn't really a song played in this episode but it's a line of dialogue that alludes to a song is Farouk quotes two tribes by Frankie goes to Hollywood when two tribes go to war a point is all you can score that's basically what the story of Im Rosenkarten zu Farms is hmm. two tribes go to war right it's weirdly the same point in those two songs. Mm-hmm. And the the Frankie Goes to Hollywood song, like, I'm not going to give all the lyrics, but it's, you know, about uh, fighting wars over oil. So when America goes to other countries to fight for war, you're just going to score a point, but you're not really achieving anything. Right. 
And this is how Farouk sees himself in relation to David. That Sid wants, like, you need to defeat him to save the world. And Farouk kind of like, sure, I'll take your help. I'm on your side. But he kind of smirks about it and is like, a point is all you can score. Mm -hmm. David and I are both gods. We're equals. And even if he kills me, I still win because I rig the game. But also, I'm not really interested in killing him. You know? Mm-hmm. And that's back to the the German folk tale that, like, Farouk reframes this as, I'm not the villain. This isn't a hero and villain story. This is just a two uh, characters story. Mm-hmm. And the show is kind of uh, pushing us in that direction, too. Yeah, absolutely. The last song in this episode is Mimuyer by Nicholas Yar. Um, the words, I don't actually know. I put it through Google Translate, but I don't actually know what uh, language this is. I think it's probably... I thought it was Spanish. But... Well, I thought it was Spanish at first. Maybe it is. Maybe it's Spanish. Yeah. Might be Portuguese is what I'm suddenly... Mm. It looks like... I don't know Spanish well enough to know. Spanish or Portuguese, either one. Uh, probably Spanish is more likely. But in any case, the words, I don't know that they are super significant. Um, translated, the words go, tell me if you know if you've seen my woman. You've seen my woman down the street and beyond. Where's my woman on the street? Over there, over there, over there, over there. You've seen my woman on the street at the club at the disco. You've seen my woman. Hey, tell me if you know if you've seen my woman. Short hair on the score. Um, so like... I feel like uh, musically it is fantastically fitting for the scene. Lyrically, I don't know that we're getting anything by mining the words. No, I don't think so either. I think it's just musically really fits. Yeah. That's the whole scene with the vermilion in the hallway. Yeah. That's the music that plays when Clark turns around and then he turns back and it starts again. Yeah. As just like perfect musically. I mean, have you seen my woman to have like these things behind him that he's not seeing and yet also seeing yeah, kind of makes sense. Yeah. That lyric to play. Yep. So that's the music. That's all the music. Okay. Yep. There was nothing over the end credits this time. Hey, it no, basically just score. Yeah. I mean, uh, Jeff Russo is scoring this whole episode and there's moments of scored music that are really evocative, but no songs mm-hmm. other than that. So we had some feedback on this episode on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I mentioned the DM that we got from Miranda, but we also got um, some feedback from Nikki Finnell, who said, due to the Amy Lenny transformation, can future Sid be some kind of robot, robot or vermilion? She has that me- metallic sound to her voice. So strange. So I, I, I feel like the, the metallic sound is just because they can't quite communicate between the past and the future. Yeah, so do I. So I don't think that she's necessarily any kind of robot, though I do think that's an interesting thought. In this episode, we mo- noticed in the past that uh, future Sid is missing an arm, and in this episode she has a very metallic prosthetic arm, mm. like a thin wire of a... But I don't know, like, so that could maybe be she's some kind of uh, cybernetic 
person in the future. Yeah. I don't really think so, though. Yeah. I think the metallic sound of her voice is the effect of time travel. It is definitely interesting, though. I think that Vermilion and the nature of Vermilion, I don't think we are done with. Mm-hmm. So in in response to that, uh, a fellow who goes by David Holler's pajama pants, that I love that <laughs> name, <laughs> at Holler Davids, said, would love to hear thoughts on who Future Sid is, how she relates to the timelines, etc. I'm thinking the timelines being like the timelines we saw in the past episode with David. And Future Sid, who she is, I... I genuinely think she's Sid. Yeah. There's a part of me that wonders if she's not real or if she's switched bodies somehow that this isn't our Sid. But I think this is a future Sid from our current timeline. Something changes. And whether we get there eventually or not, this is our Sid. Yeah, basically so do I. I don't think that we are going to get this Sid. I don't think that... uh, this is, I think this timeline is going to be averted mm-hmm. one way or another. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that she's a trick. Mm-hmm. I wondered early in the season, but at this point, I think she is essentially who she claims to be. Yeah. Uh, definitely think that thematically it's the connection between the all the alternate Davids and this alternate Sid is important, but I think in plot terms, it's probably not. If you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. That it's showing that 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 episode with the future Davids was showing that there could be multiple timelines. Yeah. Multiple well, in that episode was also just like exploring the idea that what happens uh, depends on tiny choices, and mm-hmm. now we're going to come, and there's going to be b- choices both big and small that are con- going to control whether Sid ever turns into that future Sid. That yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that that episode was doing something plot wise. It was just kind of connecting those ideas for us as viewers. Mm-hmm. So lastly, we got a tweet from Versafile. It says discussion of the John Ham segments. Now that we have all of them. And I thought that was interesting. I didn't think at first that this is the end of the John Ham things i think they're going to continue but it's a good point that he does say what have we learned Mm -hmm. and maybe it is this is the conclusion of those john ham segments he definitely the last his last uh segment in this episode has a quality of summing everything up Mm -hmm. and what does all of that then amount to in terms of our story with david i kind of said that my thoughts, I think, that uh, an egg of an idea is can turn into a monster is where we end the John Ham segments. An egg can turn into a monster. And whether I, that's real or not is up for debate. Yeah. Well, I think that David, who destroys the world, is the monster. Hmm. And I don't think it is totally clear at this point what the egg is. But I hope that by the end of the season, it will be. Mm -hmm. And I hope that by the end of the season, it'll be retrospectively, retroactively clear that like, oh, this was the point that something got in, that some idea got into David's head that he has developed into this. I'm going to kill everybody. 
Yeah. And I don't think we've seen that play out entirely yet, but I suspect that we're going to. I think that when this season ends, we will be doing a episode that's a season wrap up. Mm -hmm. And I think I will definitely be going back and watching all of the John Ham segments in all as one chunk and get a general sense of them and get a general sense of what they mean to the entire season. So I think we will answer that question in part now, but we'll answer that question in full in our season wrap up episode. Yeah, absolutely. So hold me to that, Paul. Remember that I said that. <laughs> Let me write it down. So I think that's that's all of our feedback that we got this week. If you have feedback to give us on this episode or future episodes, we'd love to hear it. Even if you are f- giving us feedback on uh, we've already finished the season, you can still tweet us, even if it's the, even if it's the future, even if you are future Sid <laughs> tweeting <laughs> us. <laughs> And you can do that at ClockworksCast on Twitter. You can find us on Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, and what's the other one? I think that's all of them. They are all, those are all linked in our show notes, mm-hmm. as well as email, ClockworksCast at gmail.com. If you'd like to give us a little bit of support to make this podcast possible, we rely on our Patreons. We don't have run any ads patreon.com slash clockworkscast as little as a dollar a month you get some special extra bonus content as well as you can uh, check out our other podcasts through there as well you can uh, give us a rating review there's a few different legion podcasts out there we'd love people to find ours give us a rating and review on itunes or wherever your podcast of choice thing is you know head on over to that review tab yeah five stars six stars whatever amount of stars <laughs> all the stars all the stars Fill all of them and that'll be good if you would like to suggest a joke to start off the episode with thanks to jacob for suggesting this week's ep- joke and if you want to suggest a joke too you can send that to me secretly at clockworkscast at gmail.com and put somewhere in the subject heading and jan won't read it put that it's for Paul only and Jan won't read it and I'll make a hilarious joke that you thought of and maybe it'll actually make Jan laugh more than the ones I think of (laughs) I always laugh internally (laughs) it's a bit secretly she thinks I'm funny secretly (laughs) sometimes very secretly (laughs) so I've been Paul Moffat I've been Jan Moffat goodbye So, while Fukuyama, not Fukuyama, while Farouk and David, jeez Louise, I wanted to call him Jeff for a second. My mind is insane. Um, let me start that again. Yeah. While David and Farouk, ah, <laughs> I kind of wanted to call him Fukuyama again.